Welcome back to Water, Wind, Wine Ministries. We are going to jump right in to John chapter 2. Today we're discussing, and it's the same day, I'm recording these all in the same day if you can't tell. Um, John chapter 2 verse 13. Now after Jesus has left Cana and has turned the water in, into wine and his disciples believe him, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is John chapter 2 verse 13. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the Passover also starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread because if you'll remember in Exodus, when God was about to extract the entirety of Israel from Egypt, he said, eat unleavened bread and eat standing up with your sandals on. And the Passover lamb was already in the oven at that time. And so then they were supposed to eat the unleavened bread. So Passover and unleavened bread kind of start at exactly the same time. And one of the traditions and one of the rules about unleavened bread is that you can't have any leaven in your house. And this is significant for what we're about to see play out in the scriptures. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem after being in um, Cana with his disciples. And he, it says in verse 14, And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Now, um, I spoke about unleavened bread and Passover because that's exactly what this is. This is Jesus cleansing the temple of leaven, and I'm going to explain that. I know that you're probably lost, but let me explain. But first, let's talk about what he's doing. Now, this word um, whip, whip of cords, it's actually one word in the original language, and what it means in Greek is a scourge, and it's an item, and it's also a verb. So you use a scourge to scourge. The word refers to a whip, and it's also the same type of whip that the Romans used to beat Jesus in the praetorium of Pilate right before he went to the cross. Now, what it is, is it's, um, it's about this long of a handle, about mm, 10 inches, maybe a foot long handle, and then there's about 16 inches worth of leather straps on it and on the ends of the leather straps there could be bone or rock or glass tied into those so that they would rip the flesh off of the person that is being beaten or scourged. Now what Jesus is doing is he goes into the temple. Let me just let me just I'm gonna just geek out here for a second. He goes to the temple. They're not technically in the temple that they're trading because that would have been bad. But I'm gonna to get to why this is such a big deal. Um, and they're actually on the western retaining wall. Right now, in Jerusalem, this is the Wailing Wall. It's the western wall. Right here where this all this happened is the western wall. If you go to Jerusalem and you go to the western wall, the Wailing Wall, and the Jews are there going like this back and forth with their curls and they're praying and putting prayers in the wall and all that stuff, that's where this happened. Okay, it's the western retaining wall of the temple. And so, Jesus comes up to the temple and he sees all of these vendors that are selling animals. They're selling oxen and sheep and doves and all pigeons and all the things. Why are they selling the animals? 
They're selling the animals because it is Passover and everybody's coming to Jerusalem and they are going to need an animal sacrifice because they have been sinning. And so they're coming and they're going to buy their sacrifice in Jerusalem and then they're going to just pay the guy and he's going to pick out the best of his little herd and he's going to give it to the priests and they're going to kill it and that, that's going to absolve the guy of the sin. Okay, that is the overall gist of it. I went through that fast because I'm going to touch on it a lot in this session. So Jesus comes up and he sees this trading going on at the western wall of the temple. Technically not in the temple. And he's like, okay. And he goes and he makes a whip. He makes a scourge. You know, there are some words in the Bible that look a certain way in English, but they don't mean that when you break them down in the original language. Like, for instance, when I talked about when Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with me? That, that doesn't really mean that. The implication isn't that. And so... You can do that with some words because the way that they're presented in English is different than they are in the actual in the actual language. And however, whip and scourge is not one of those words. Whip and scourge, you cannot get away from what they mean. They always mean the same thing. It's like the Greek word for all is all. The Greek word for scourge is scourge. That's it. And so Jesus, I want you to picture in your head, he walks up to the temple. He sees all of these animals, all of these people, all of this money everywhere. And he's like, oh, 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 I'm mad. And in fact, that's what the Bible says that he feels. It says that zeal for the house of God had eaten him up. And we'll get to that in a second. But Jesus premeditatedly goes and makes a scourge. It says right here in John chapter 2, verse 15, when he made a whip of cords, when he made a scorch, he did not just pick one up that was on the table of somebody, just grab one from a Roman soldier. No, he went and made one. Physically made one. He premeditated the violence that was about to ensue. And I know that a lot of people are stuck in this love of God thing, which is great because the love of God fulfills the law, and that's fine, and it's wonderful, that's where we live, God is love, all of that, I'm for it, not against it. But what they don't understand is the violent, violent and non-sinful rage that God himself feels toward things that are against him. And Jesus was sinless, is sinless, and was about to show up in these traitors' lives. Traitors, trading money, and traitors. So Jesus makes this cat of nine tails, this scourge, and he comes up and he starts hitting people with it, and hitting animals with it, and turning loose animals. It's Passover. There are millions of people in Jerusalem. I was at a rodeo well, a bull riding last night. And I want you to think about, if you've been to a rodeo, if you've been to a fair where there's lots of animals, you've been to a petting zoo, you've been to a farm where there are lots of animals, imagine all of those animals, or even a regular zoo, just being let out onto the streets with millions of people. Do you know how dangerous that is? I mean, cattle and sheep aren't that dangerous, but in large herds and large quantities, they can be because they're just trying to escape. So Jesus comes up to the temple and he starts beating people with this scourge and loosening, 
gates and um, undoing halters and whipping donkeys and whipping cattle and whipping sheep to get them going. And there's just mayhem. And then he's overturning, taking the money, taking the cash registers and throwing it out. I mean, there's money and animals and tables and people flying everywhere, blood and hair and fur and people. I mean, it is chaos in this moment. Why is God so mad? Why is he mad? Right? I mean, people are going to make a sacrifice. They're going to the place where you make sacrifices and they're there to make a sacrifice. Why is he mad? He's the one who said they should sacrifice, right? I'll tell you why he's mad. Because the law of sacrifice is a big deal. Um, when God instituted the law, he was very distinct about sacrifice. And he said that he would get the best animals. He would have the ones without any blemishes, the firstborn, the ones that were perfect, the ones that viably could produce the best offspring and make the most money. Those are the ones that were to be sacrificed. Not only that, but you were supposed to sacrifice out of your own flock. So can you imagine, any of you who've ever raised animals, puppies, cattle, sheep, chickens, whatever, you raise something, and it is the best something. It's the best one. And you are like, yes, this steer, this heifer, this lamb, this sheep, this chicken, this whatever, this dog, this labradoodle is so beautiful and so rare and so perfect. I am going to make so much money that I can retire early from the sale of this one animal. And if I don't sell it, then I can sell breeding rights to it. And then I can retire early and my income will be perpetuated. This is, this is what they're dealing with. Or you're going to slaughter it and eat it. And it's so fat and so big and so wonderful that your family's going to eat for a year. Okay. These are the, the type of animals that we're talking about here. And life-changing animals. And then one day, you screw up and you break one of the laws, the 613 laws of God, and you have to give up that animal. The one who ensured your future, the one who was the most valuable to you, the one that you raised yourself. It's a little easier to imagine if it's livestock, because typically livestock is raised for that. But imagine it was your dog. Imagine you had a litter of puppies and you picked the best one for yourself. Because you were going to raise this puppy and you were going to continue your breeding program with this puppy. And you screw up. And you have to go kill it. What does that do to your heart? It hurts your heart. And what does that do to your opinion of whatever sin you committed to get you into that position? It makes you completely resistant and hating that sin. And I dare say, probably hating yourself and resenting yourself because you had to give up this most valuable thing because you screwed up. So that's what sacrifice is. That's what God intended it to be because he wanted to get the point across that you don't sin. So when people are at Jerusalem selling sacrificial animals, What's happening is that people from all over Israel are coming 
with all of their stuff. They're just they're just living wild, wild and out all year long. And then they're like, sweet, I'm gonna save up a little money because there's gonna be a sacrifice sale at the temple and I'll just take care of all my stuff then. This is exactly what's happening. It doesn't really hurt them. It's no skin off their nose. They've just saved a little bit of money, put, put some money back so that they can buy the best animal so that they can go get all their sins washed out. This is, some religions actually do this. Some Christian denominations actually do this now. What they'll do is they'll party, 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 and then say, okay, well, let me just give up this for this amount of time. Or they'll party, 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 and then they'll go to the church and say, okay, can you just pray for me and I'm good? Or can I light a candle and I'm good? Can I say these magic words a couple of times and then I'm good? That's exactly what they're doing. There's no... There's no heart. There's no anything. These people are selling sacrifices and it pisses Jesus off. And it pisses God off. Because they don't understand. And so it says that in verse um, 17, it says that the disciples remember that it's written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now that is a reference to uh, Psalm chapter 69 verse 9. And what's very interesting about Psalm chapter 69 is that it is prophetic. It looks backward and forward. It looks at Jonah and it looks at the Messiah. And it also looks at David. There are, the Jews believe there are three levels to scripture. Just like there are three levels to God, as it were. He was, he is, and he, he will be. It's the same thing with scripture. It was, it is, and it will be. So when you read something in scripture, it's both backward-looking, present-looking, and forward-looking. It's a little bit weird, but that's how it is. So when, when a Jew reads, reads Psalm 69, verse 9, they're thinking, oh, that is what happened to Jonah. It is what's happening to David when he wrote this, and it will happen in the life of the Messiah. Okay? So that's what a Jew reads. So when the Jews see this man just making an absolute mess of the temple. They come to him and they say, it says in verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? They asked this question because they knew that what he was doing was only possible if he was the Messiah, meaning the only one who had the authority to end the sacrifices was God himself, was the Messiah. So they were saying, what sign do you show us that you are the Messiah that will allow us to then give you this authority to stop what we're doing here? And Jesus answers and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, raise it up. Now, these people, remember, they do not see the kingdom of God. They don't comprehend the kingdom of God. They don't understand it. They're veiled because they're still under the law of Moses. And they're like, what? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. What are you, Superman? Do you own a construction company? What are you doing? What are you even talking about? Like, they're like, what, a crazy man? But what Jesus is talking about is they asked him for a sign that he was the Messiah. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What is he talking about? He's talking about a couple of things. He is right here in this moment making reference to what is commonly known now as the Jonah Code. The Jonah Code. All right. 
Psalm 69 is referring to what was happening in David's life, but it looked back on what happened in Jonah's life, and it was looking forward to what would happen in the Messiah's life. That's why it mentions it. Zeal for my house has eaten Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's why it mentions it. It's pointing our attention as the reader to the fact that this is talking about the Messiah. Okay? And Jesus said in Matthew, this, I know this is hard to understand. Please stick with me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Again, the Pharisees are asking him for a sign. And in verse 39, he says, he answered them and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus in this moment is, is saying, You are asking me what proof I give you that I am the Messiah. And he's saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's saying no sign will be given that I am the Messiah except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, let's look. Let's look in Jonah. In Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, Jonah says, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you read chapter 2 of the book of Jonah, and then you read Psalm 69, you can see that they're similar. That the psalmist is indeed referring to what happened to Jonah, and he's using that to speak about what's happening in his own life, and then he's using it to foreshadow what will happen in the life of the Messiah. Jonah actually died in the belly of the whale, and God resurrected him. And if you read Jonah chapter 2, you will understand that, and then you read chapter 69 of, the, of Psalms, and you will understand that. He was in the belly of the whale three days, and then God raised him up. Same thing with Jesus. He's in the belly of the earth three days, God raised him up. And so when the Pharisees ask in John and also in Matthew, what is the sign that you are the Messiah? Jesus makes reference to the Jonah code. And he says, the only sign that's given is that I will be in the earth three days and three nights, and then I will be raised up. And what he's talking about, and scripture actually talks about this in John chapter 2, is that the temple is the temple of the Lord, and he is dwelling in Jesus at this moment, right? And he says, destroy this temple, talking about the temple of his own body, and in three days I will raise it up. We know that he's talking about his body being the temple, because in John chapter 1, verse 21, it says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. It literally says it. So, we know that when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he's actually answering their question. And it doesn't sound like he's answering their question. But he is. And so, they're asking him this because they're saying, are you the Messiah? And he's saying, yes I am. But he's doing it in a way that is kind of veiled. So I mentioned at the beginning of the video that Jesus was there at the Passover and that he was cleaning out the leaven. See, because Jesus told the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they thought he was talking about bread. He wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about their religion. And he has to get religion and the greed and the self-promotion and the self-sacrifice that comes with religion out 
of the temple, out of the place where people come to worship. He had to get it out. And so it was Passover when Jesus was having this experience at the Western Wall, and it was also unleavened bread. It was about to be unleavened bread. So Jesus was cleaning house, literally, and he was getting the leaven out of the temple, out of the area. He was getting the leaven out. He was getting what happens to people when they get religious. When people get religious, they get greedy. When people get religious, they get controlling. When people get religious, they get fearful. Religion is not a good thing. Relationship is a great thing. And what Jesus is doing is he's getting all of these people out of the way. He's cleaning the leaven out of the way so that actual worshipers of God can come and worship God. That the actual relationship that God wants to have with his people can be had with his people. And people don't just get to flippantly sin and be like, oh, well, whatever. You know, it's no big deal. I can just pay for it. And, you know, while we're on the subject, this is what people do today. I think Heath and I were talking about how people don't have um, an awareness of sin. We shouldn't have a consciousness of sin. Like, when you do something wrong, you should understand that it is under the blood and you don't need to be identifying yourself with that sin. Like, a lot of people who are alcoholics, for instance, they'll say, I'm an alcoholic, even though they haven't had a drink for like 30 years, they'll stand up at an AA meeting and say, my name is such and such and I'm an alcoholic. No, you're not. And the more you identify as that, the more you will become that and the harder it gets for you to resist that. So we shouldn't identify as a sinner. We shouldn't identify as a sin. We should, however, understand that there is sin in the world and we should, however, understand that um, we used to sin. And we should know that we used to sin. Even Paul said that he was the chief among sinners. And he sinned, but he didn't live from a place of understanding that he was a sinner. It's a little bit interesting, but that is translated was. I am the chief of the sinners, but it actually is the word was. I was the chief of sinners. Anyway, something else. But the point I'm trying to make is that people do this today. They're like, I don't really understand the major sacrifice that Jesus made. I don't really understand. It doesn't hit me in the heart. So I'm just going to live like I want. And then I'm going to go to church on Sunday. And I'm going to give my tithes and pay the professional Christians to understand for me. And that's what they're doing. And that's exactly what pissed Jesus off in this, in John chapter 2 is he was like, no, you have to have a personal understanding of the sacrifice that was made for your sin. You can't just buy somebody's word for it. You can't just buy a sacrifice. You can't buy a sacrifice. You have to understand it. You have to be in it. And that's what made him mad. And that's what people are doing today. They're just like buying the sacrifice. They're like, oh yeah, I'll just confess Jesus and I'm all good. And, and does God love them? Yes. Can they confess Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead? Yes. All of those things are true, but what happens is they don't have a recognition of the sacrifice, the actual sacrifice, and how painful that was, how important that was. And so they just take it flippantly, and they count the blood of Christ as a common thing. And that is what made Jesus mad in this moment. I'm going to end this session now. Remember that I love you and that Jesus loves you.